You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church from the series, The King and the Kings, Anticipation in the Books of Samuel. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. If you have your Bibles, open up to First Samuel chapter 16. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to speak with you uh, this morning. Uh, it's fun when you get a text that you're pretty familiar with. Sometimes Todd hands you a text and it's like, oh boy. I need the six months you gave me to prepare for this one, but uh, this one's more familiar. I was really hoping for next week's, which is David and Goliath, but that's like right up the youth pastor's alley, but, uh, but this one's a good one too. This one's a lot of fun, so I'm excited. If you don't mind, can I read it? It's not real long, 23 verses. I'll read it quickly. I want you to see the narrative. Sometimes as preachers, we break it down so much and we dissect the text so much that you're like, I forget the story. And so I don't want you to miss the story. So let me read it real quick for you. First Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him when I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and appointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now uh, command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. 
And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him uh, greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed, and it was what was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Such an interesting text. There's a lot in this text. We're going to break it down into three chunks or three paragraphs that you can see in your Bible. But to kind of help you understand where we think this text is going, I want to ask you a quick question. Is it ever confusing or difficult to get your wants and your needs in the right order? Do you ever get those confused? If you ask a kid, you know, what do you want and what do you need? Or, yeah, ask even an adult sometimes, what do you need? We have a hard time answering that question. A lot of times we get those confused. For my family, it's right around the tax season because you kind of get this little bonus. We struggle every year with this. The tax return hits our bank account, and we always set aside a chunk of it to meet a need. That could be a house uh, issue, it could be a car fix, something like that. We always have this chunk of it that we know we're going to take care of something immediately. immediately. And it always kind of creates the conversation. Okay, so what are the needs? And I usually come with my list in hand, and my wife usually comes with her list in hand. And we have to have that tough conversation of what are the needs and what are the wants. One year in particular, we had this TV that was starting to act weird. The TV was perfectly fine, no issues at all, except you had to turn it on twice before the TV would show a picture. So that was it. You just had to turn it on, turn it off, turn it back on. Well, somehow I convinced Casey that the TV was on the fritz. And it was only going to get worse until it stopped working altogether. I was completely convinced of this, and I convinced her of this as well. So we might as well replace it now while we have the money instead of later when it breaks, right? That's common sense. So it's a need. We've got to have a TV. So probably eight years later, which is today, we still have that darn TV, and it still works fine. The only inconvenience is you have to hit the power button three times instead of, <laughs> instead of once. The reality was that I just really wanted a bigger TV. And I tricked myself and my wife into thinking that that want was a need, and it worked brilliantly. This is kind of the part of the tension that's in our passage today. We're wrestling with the difference between wants and needs. Now that the crown has been stripped from Saul, what does Israel need? That's the question that is addressed in all of chapter 16. And then we want to know, has Israel learned their lesson that appearance isn't the most important thing? There we go. There's a summary of where we're headed. Um, As we transition to 1 Samuel 16, I hope that you have been frustrated and have felt this burden on the leadership of Israel. We've walked you through from 1 Samuel chapter 1 to the point we're at now, and I hope you have felt a frustration with their leadership. Every single person that God has put in charge in the nation of Israel has failed to some degree. In chapter 1 and 2, we meet Eli, and Eli's the priest, and Eli lacks courage. He won't deal with his children. He won't be a dad. He won't lead his children to love and worship and serve God. 
And he also won't deal with Israel's idolatry. So Israel continues to worship other gods, and he kind of like throws his hands up in the air like, I don't know what you want me to do. You know the people. He lacks courage. Eli's sons are supposed to take over uh, for his job, and immediately we're introduced to them as young men who lack character. They don't care about worshiping God how he demands to be worshiped. They, they cheat, they steal. Um, they're very immoral men. Samuel's sons are a lot like Eli's sons. They lack spiritual discipline and leadership. And then we're introduced to Saul, the first king of Israel. And we learn throughout this long story that Saul follows his passions rather than trusting God. Saul listens to his heart instead of listening to the voice of the Lord. Saul listens to his men, his friends, instead of listening to Samuel. And then as we're continuing to unfold the story about Samuel, we understand that Samuel doesn't seem to have enough influence He's got the right heart. He's called to do the job. But he doesn't seem to have the ear of the people. The people don't listen to him. He's a priest, and he plays the role of a prophet, but he's not the king. And since he's not the king, the people don't take him seriously, and they don't listen to him, and they continue to struggle with idolatry and not obeying God like they should. So all throughout our narrative so far, we have just wanted Israel to have the type of leader that will set things right. That's been the summary so far. A leader after leader after leader steps up, put in place, and they fall. And so now, as we move on, we're asking the question, will they ever get a leader who is good enough to fix their problems? Who can put this mess back together? Who can right the wrongs? And is there hope for God's people? That's where you're at. As a reader of a book, right? As you've been reading through a narrative, that's where you are, reader. Oh, when are they going to get this right king? When is the perfect king going to come along? When is this hero going to show up? We desperately need him. In chapter 15, just to review real quick, God rejects Saul as king because of his sins. Samuel and Saul depart and are never, never see each other again. And now it seems as if Samuel is really upset about what happened to Saul, and maybe nervous about the future. Like, well, I, I worked pretty well with Saul. I knew him. At least I was comfortable with this. I knew what it looked like. And now that he's gone, I'm not really sure what's next. And this is where God says to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? So 1 Samuel 16, this chapter is about Israel now needing a new king. But what kind of king do they need? Not what kind of king do they want. The nation of Israel still needs someone to save them from the hands of the Philistines and their surrounding enemies. God is reminding Samuel and the nation that his plan isn't done. He is still working his plan of saving his people. Isn't that reassuring? It reminds me of Isaiah chapter 6. Middle schoolers, we were in Isaiah 6 a couple weeks ago. In Isaiah 6, 1, it says, When King Uzziah died, when there was a change of throne, when a new leader had to come into place, when King Uzziah died, the nation feared. And it says that Isaiah saw the Lord seated on the throne. Isn't that beautiful? The throne becomes empty. King Uzziah dies. 
And Isaiah sees, oh, but the throne's not empty. This is a better throne. And there's a better king than Uzziah. And he's seated right where he's supposed to be. This is the same story that's unfolding in 1 Samuel 16. When the throne becomes empty, the people tremble. Whenever there's a change of power, do you feel this, America? Whenever there's a change of power, there's fear. We never know what to expect, what's going to come next, because every new king has his new agenda and his new priorities, and there's always nervousness. Every four to eight years, we become a mess, right? Because we're never sure what exactly is going to happen, what's going to come next. And this is where God speaks to his people and says, do you trust me? Do you believe that I got this? That I'm the king? That I sit on the throne and it's a better throne? Do you trust me that I'm in charge and that I'm good? And so let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to break it into three chunks. The first chunk we're going to look at is verses 1 through 5. And verses 1 through 5 teach us that Israel needs a new king. That's obvious. But they need a better king. Chapter 15, as Todd taught last week, reminded us that the, that the throne is going to be stripped from Saul and it's going to be handed over to his neighbor who will be a better king. And now in chapter 16, we're learning what does it look like to be a better king? Who is this guy and how is he better than Saul? Man, Saul was a stud, wasn't he? He was a foot taller than everybody. He was strong. He looked like a king. Man, the people feared him. The people listened to him. How could you get a better king than Saul? That's, that's the question. The first five verses address this. So Samuel is sent by God to go anoint the next king, but God is very specific on who the next king will be. Very specific. He doesn't tell Samuel, hey, buddy, you go ahead and pick. I trust you. I know that you will pick the right guy. You know exactly what they need. No, that's not what he says. He doesn't say, you will know him when you see him. Like, go ahead, I'll lead you in the right direction, but then when he shows up, it'll just be clear. You'll just, you'll just know. No, he doesn't say that either. It is instead the complete opposite. He says, Samuel, you won't know him when you see him. I am going to have to lead you and guide you the entire way so you don't mess this up. Samuel, you're bound to fail, so I'm going to take charge. I'm going to take over this. I'm going to make sure you don't mess this up and pick a want over a need. That's this chapter. So he says, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. Who is Jesse from Bethlehem? Well, here's what we know. It's a specific man in a specific city. He doesn't say just go to this normal area, go to this spot. He says, no, you've got to go talk to this guy and he's in this town. Don't mess this up do this. It's like when my wife sends me to the grocery store. She says, Travis, look me in the eyes. It's in aisle 17. It's on the top row. It has a green label, and I texted a picture of it to you. If you dare bring anything else home, you're going right back. So I bring home the, the whatever it is, the rice cauliflower, and she's like, what is this? I did everything. How could you fail? I'm like, I don't know. I got confused. I was at Starbucks for a half hour. He's making sure Samuel doesn't fail by giving him very specific 
instructions. Then verse 2. Verse 2 is beautiful. If you underline your Bible, man, look at verse 2. Underline verse 2. It says, For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. A very fascinating wording. If you're a person who enjoys like wording and how things are worded, this phrase, this sentence is, is beautiful. Think about the wording. He says, for I'm going to provide for myself. That is very different than I'm going to provide for you. Just think about that for a second. God is showing possession over Israel. Vested interest, ownership. If I were to tell my daughter, I will provide for you something, that denotes a gift that is her responsibility from then on, right? I'm going to provide for you a kitten. Not my stupid kitten, it's your stupid kitten, right? You take care of the kitten. But if I were to say, I will provide for myself, that denotes something that I have responsibility over from then on. This is how God views Israel. This is how God views his people. They are his, his responsibility. He has a plan to redeem them to himself. The Bible is a narrative about God providing for himself a king. That's the text. Genesis to Revelation. It's a story of God providing for himself a king or a redeemer to bring his people back to himself. The choosing of this king will be vastly important as we will see in the upcoming weeks. We call it the Davidic covenant and you'll see it in just a couple weeks. Samuel's response is not one of trust. Look at his response there. But of fear. He's like, oh, how can I go? You know the people, they're going to kill me. Do you remember chapter 15, God? Uh, That interaction with Saul didn't go great. They're going to kill me. It's not exactly a courageous response from one of Saul's, or Israel's fearless leaders. Again, it's just kind of showing Samuel's character. God says, I, I'll provide him. Don't worry. I'm in charge. So verses 2 through 5 show us how God is going to provide for himself a king. In verse 2, we see that God must provide safety for Samuel to get to Jesse and his sons. He provides the safety. Then we see that God must provide the right people to interact with Samuel in order to get Jesse and his sons to the sacrifice. So all of a sudden, the elders of the city meet him and, hey, do you come peaceably? Like that whole interaction. Is God providing? Do you notice he doesn't interact with Saul? God is providing Number three, God must protect Samuel from picking the wrong king six or seven times. Um, uh, Jesse brings all seven of his sons out, and God protects him from picking the wrong guy. And then God must provide David to show up even when he isn't first available. As you see this story unfold, it's all God the author directing the play. It's God writing the story, not seeing how it unfolds. God's completely in charge of this whole story. All of this is God providing for himself a king, reminding Samuel that he's not in charge. The people of Israel aren't in charge. God and God alone is in charge. These first five verses are fascinating. Here's a summary. Mankind creates messes. God's intervention and sovereign leading is mankind's only hope. That's how you could summarize the whole Bible. Then now we're going to move to verses 6 through 13 and kind of see how this narrative continues to unfold. 
what we learn in this paragraph is that this king is not going to be anything like the last king. He's going to be vastly different. We're not told a ton in this paragraph, but that's the main point. And then the chapters following will continue to reveal how these two kings are different. It's going to be a comparison between Saul and David from now on. How different these two kings are. In this paragraph, we learn the difference between David and all of his brothers, and as well as David and Saul. We are learning the type of person God needed to be king. And again, remember, it isn't what you would expect. That's why this story is weird, because it's not what you would expect. But many of us are so familiar with this story that it has lost its awe factor. Can we just be honest? A lot of the Bible, a lot of the Bible stories, we, we just know so well that we're not in shock anymore. So you get to 1 Samuel 16, and you already know how the story ends. So Eliab stands up, and you're like, he's not going to pick you, right? And then it's Shama. No, like we know the end of the story, so it's not that amazing. Next week, Pastor Todd will be sharing you David and Goliath. Imagine if you were a first-time listener to the story of David and Goliath. You'd be on the edge of your seat, like biting your fingernails, like, how is this little kid going to fight this giant? This is crazy. But we're all so familiar with it. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go down to the stream, get the three stones, get your little sling. Yeah, it works out well. We've kind of lost the awe factor. So try, try to read this paragraph with fresh eyes. Try to imagine if you were a first-time reader, as this interaction happens where Samuel's got to pick a new king and Jesse's got seven of them, how would, you, how would you think this story would unfold? Verse 6, when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. In our vernacular, it'd be like, oh my goodness, he's huge, right? Like, that's the first interaction that happens. So, uh, Samuel interacts with the first son, and we just learned that he is an impressive specimen. He's tall, dark, and handsome. He's got muscles for days. He's the firstborn. He's just the guy that you would expect. Samuel shows up, this huge behemoth of a man, probably bigger than Saul, just this rock monster shows up, and he's like, yeah, that'll do. Yeah, I think you'll work, right? And God has to sovereignly protect Samuel from picking a want over a need. It's interesting. This is the firstborn. Eliab's the firstborn. This is how things normally work, right? This is the normal order. Eliab, the firstborn, the biggest, the strongest, the most good-looking. That's the guy that gets special privileges. And Samuel, again, has to be protective. That's not the type of person God's going to use, so God rejects him. And then Abinadab shows up. Okay, if God's not going to allow the firstborn, you know, sometimes weird circumstances do happen. It's definitely the secondborn. For all you middle children or secondborn, you kind of know every once in a while you get perks. Like when the firstborn is bad, sometimes you get the, you get the blessing, right? So you would at least think Abinadab, right? Like he'll, he'll get the throne. And again, God rejects Abinadab. The thirdborn is Shammah. And he shows up, and he's the thirdborn, another big man, can throw a spear probably, and nope, it's not him. And then all we're told, we don't get the other guy's names, all we're told is seven sons in total pass before Samuel. We don't know much about these men, except that they were too similar to Saul, and not enough like God. Isn't that interesting? 
We're not told anything about these guys. We're not told why they were rejected. We're not told about their moral failures or their character flaws or their personality weirdnesses. We're not told anything. So all we know is that these seven sons are too much like Saul and not enough like God. They were fine men, probably, but they lacked the type of heart God needed. That's what we're supposed to learn. Then all of a sudden, the story of David. We've never heard of David before up to this point. Verse 16 comes, and all of a sudden, there's a new character. You know the major characters so far, and now this little boy appears into the scene, and his name is David. You know all about David, but just assume you didn't. Assume you don't know anything about David. Here's what we learn. David is the youngest. Some translations say the smallest because he might have had a younger brother, but he's at, at maybe at that time the youngest or he's the smallest, which all well, that means is he doesn't look like a king. It'd be like if you were looking for the senior pastor of First Family Church and you headed to like the second grade room. I mean, he's got to be in here. Like you wouldn't do that, right? That's not where you would, what you would look for in a king. We're not even in, and he's not even invited to the sacrifice. Isn't that interesting? Instead, he's tending the sheep. Dad was in a predicament, right? Well, we got to go to the sacrifice. We got to consecrate ourselves and go to the sacrifice. Uh, the seven oldest, you get to come. Uh, David, you go watch the sheep. Somebody's got to watch the sheep. So we might as well have the rug rat. We might as well have well the, the smallest and, and, and the one who plays with the sheep well anyways. He's a lot like them. So David, you go, you go take care of the sheep, okay? Um, you don't even get to come. He's not even invited to the sacrifice. And then we're told that he's ruddy, he has beautiful eyes, and he's handsome. All that depiction is, why do they give us that information? Is because I think the point is, is the point is David's not ugly. It's, but it's not his looks that got him the job. Sometimes I think we read this, the Bible and we think like, yeah, God picks the losers. God picks the ugly people. And I, I think that's just the point. Why are those adjectives in here? It's reminding us that there's nothing uh, like horrible about this guy. It's just not his looks didn't get him the job. He's not ugly. He's just normal. And it's his normalness that's probably has something going to him. His pride hasn't crept in yet. So why was David picked? Think about that for a second. Why was he picked? Here's what we know in verse 7. We know that God sees the heart. That's what we know. There was something about David that you wouldn't have seen. If you were to interact with David and all of his sons, you wouldn't have been able to say, oh, it's obvious. This is what sets this kid apart. And we know that God saw something that Samuel was unable to see, and it was his heart. God needed him to have the right heart. This chapter doesn't describe David's heart much for us. Like if you were to write down, like do a Bible study on this chapter, and you were trying to think, figure out in this chapter, in this chapter alone, what was it about David's heart? You wouldn't be able to come to many conclusions. This chapter doesn't describe David's heart much for us, but in the following chapters, this is where we're headed, okay? In the following chapters, we will see the type of heart David had. God uses people with a heart like his. From Genesis to Revelation, we see God addressing heart issues, not appearance issues. 
That's one of the biggest distinctions between one of the the hurdles that all Bible readers have and all Pharisees have is, God, but I've got all the exteriors figured out. And he's like, I'm dealing with the heart. You don't understand. It doesn't matter how you look on a Sunday morning. It's about how you've behaved and how you've responded and how's your heart doing. But as beautiful as verse 7 is, right? Verse 7, it's beautiful. We know this verse. You probably have it on, on a quilt in your living room somewhere, right? Verse 7 is so beautiful. But you ever, have you ever thought about how terrifying verse 7 is? Think about it for a second, sinner. God looks on the heart. How many in this room is that good news for? This verse makes us cheer, right? It's the famous underdog verse. It's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. Woo, yeah. Go 16 seed, right? Like we all get excited about this. But is that what the verse really means? It's beautiful because we see God giving Israel exactly what they need. A man with a heart like God. What a gift. It's God giving his children a wonderful leader. That's in that verse. David's going to fight their battles for them. He's going to teach them to worship and fear the Lord. He will lead them in worship as the choir master. He'll begin the process of making plans to build God's temple. Like, that's in that verse. Like, oh good, he saved us from Eliab. Oh good. But this verse is terrifying. As people 2,000 years post the cross. It's terrifying because then we remember that God sees our heart. God sees your heart. God sees my heart. And just as he saw Eliab's and Abinadab's and Shammah's heart and was displeased, he also sees my heart and he sees your heart. Isn't that scary? You see, God doesn't just see our actions. He sees our motives. He doesn't just see our appearance, right? I put a tie on to look good for you this morning. He doesn't just see our appearance. He sees our purposes. Why'd you get all dressed up? Why'd you put the makeup on? Why'd you wear nice clothes? He sees our purposes. He doesn't just see what we don't do. He sees what we want to do. You see, we can't fool God. We can't fool God like we can fool our Facebook friends and our Instagram followers. We can't fool God like we can fool our family. We can't fool God like we can fool our lighthouses. We can't fool God like we can fool ourselves. God knows our hearts. And for everyone in this room, that's not good news. God sees your heart. And what we know from Scripture is the heart is deceitfully wicked. Deceitfully wicked. Every heart. Every heart is corrupt. Every heart is sinful. And the punishment for sin is death. Oh, verse 7 is not always great news. It can be terrifying news as well. But there is something, there is something about David's heart that pleases God. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in the text. So what is it? And what we believe it is, is to be that his heart, here's the point of the text, his heart, David's heart, is a picture of the perfect future king's heart. This story's not about David. It's about God providing himself a king. 
when we learn, what we learn about David's heart is that it will be a similar but imperfect picture of Jesus' heart. Just like all of the Old Testament characters, or most of the Old Testament characters, are a picture of Jesus. John 5.39 says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. The Old Testament's about Jesus. It's not about David. Luke 24, 27 says this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The hero of the story is not David. The hero of the story is Jesus. David's heart is a picture of a better king than him who's going to come and who's going to fight their battles for them and he's going to save them. David sure wasn't a perfect king. You know the story well enough to know it doesn't end that way. David's not a perfect king, far from it. But verse 13 of chapter 16 starts the narrative of David's amazing reign, which is a story of God's love and mercy towards his nation Israel. That's what this is. It's a story about God's love for his people. And please notice where the credit belongs. Look at verse 13. Who gets the credit in verse 13? And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So is David the hero of the story? David was this stellar, awesome man who never failed and was always sinless and who had this amazing, impeccable character and just always obeyed? No. It was what was inside of him that gave him the ability to obey, which is your hope too. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The best thing about David was something that entered him from the outside, the Holy Spirit. That was the thing he had going for him, was God, not David. Even during David's reign, David is not the hero of the story. God is. All right, our last section. The last section gets a little weird. If you have questions, this is where they'll pop up. There's a lot of interesting wording and phrases in this paragraph. But here's the point. In verses 14 through 23, what we learn is that God is sovereignly interweaving the lives of Saul and David for his purposes. This is a weird story. Like if you were to write this story, you wouldn't be able to make this stuff up. This stuff is so intricate and so interesting. This is the beginning of the beautiful story of God interweaving the lives of Saul and David together. Here's what we learn in this paragraph, is that God is sovereign over everything. Sovereign means in control, and you're going to see that. So three things that God is sovereign over in this passage. We already read it, so I'm going to kind of just skim through it. But three things that God is sovereign over in this passage. Number one, God is sovereign over the kings and authorities of the earth. It says, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. That's weird. Kind of odd probably enters some questions into your head. Here's what it shows. God's in charge of the leaders of the world. God at any moment can anoint leaders. He can bring them to power. And at any moment, he can tear them down. He's more powerful than our president. He's more powerful than the German chancellor. He's more powerful than any ruler who's on the throne right now. They're on the throne because he's allowed them to be there. And at any moment, he can take them out. At any moment. That's what this proves. 
God has the ability to appoint and to tear down the rulers of the world at any, Rome, at any moment. Just read Romans chapter 13, John chapter 19. You'll see that conclusion. One of the greatest practices you can do is to read through the Bible like the narrative it is. Have you ever tried that? Read through the Bible in a year? One thing you will learn as you read through it is that God is not just in control of Israel and the church. No, God is in charge of every single nation, all people, all people groups, and they are all fulfilling his purposes, whatever that purpose may be. They are all fulfilling that purpose throughout the story of the Bible. Sometimes it doesn't look like that. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way. But if you read your text, it's exactly how the Bible plays out. Every kingdom is at God's disposal. He can bring them in and slaughter Israel, or he can destroy them with the angel of the Lord, right? 180,000 are destroyed with the angel of the Lord. He has complete control over whoever he wants. The second thing we learn about God's sovereignty is that God is even in charge of his spirit, the anointing spirit or the Holy Spirit. And guess what? God's even control of evil spirits. That's weird probably enters some questions into your mind. God is in control of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, this anointing Spirit, and He's in control of all spirits, even evil spirits. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. We can debate this passage for a long time, but the thing that is certain in this verse is that God is in control. God is in control of His anointing Spirit, And God is in control of this evil or harmful spirit which is meant to torment Saul. God's fully in control of that. God is in control of the things we can see and he is in control of the things we can't see. Oh, to have a window into the spiritual world just for a second to see what God is up to and what he is doing throughout the world. That is what we know. We do not have a weak God We don't have a limited God. We have a fully in control God. Therefore, we have no need to fear. No need to fear rulers and authorities, and no need to fear Satan and his demons. Not all worship God, but all are under his reign, even if they lack knowledge of it. Martin Luther said this. This is a fascinating sentence. God says, sorry, Martin Luther says, even the devil is God's devil. All are under his authority. Chew on that for a while. The last thing we learn in this paragraph is that every single detail, even ordinary, daily routines, normal, insignificant activities, God is in control of. Notice the need in this paragraph. Saul has an evil spirit that's tormenting him, and somebody comes up with the idea that Saul needs someone who is gifted with the lyre. Somebody pops up and says, oh, I, I know just the kid. I don't know how he knew all of this about, about David, but David just so happened to be gifted with the lyre. And while I was out walking, I saw this kid who was brilliant with the lyre. It's such an interesting verse in verse 18. It says, One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful and plain, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. I have no idea how he knows all that about that individual. But God is interweaving 
the needs, the resources, and the relationships. God provided the need. God provided David with a resource. And God provided this young man with the relationship with David to interact with them. You see that? All of a sudden, it's like, this is a perfect fit. You need a guitar player. David's sweet. Let's get these guys together. It'll work out awesome. And God sovereignly puts this all together. This whole paragraph teaches us that God is in charge. God is in charge, and he is providing for himself a king. Verse 2. That's this, that's this chapter. God's in control. Israel needs a new king. God's not asleep. He's got this. Samuel, you're a mess because of what happened in your relationship with Saul. You're worried that this is going to turn out well. You're not sure if the nation of Israel is going to end okay. You're not sure if God's going to be able to piece all these things together. What are we going to do? I don't know how to pick the next king. And God's like, I got this. Never for one second has this world been out of my control. It feels like it. You're a nervous wreck. I got this. And I'm going to prove it to you from now on. Here's the conclusion. God's plan since the fall has been to provide for his people exactly what they need. That includes protecting them from getting what they want. David was a great king for Israel, and he met a lot of their needs for many years. But the best thing David did, here's this, the best thing David did was to remind Israel that God is still their king, And his plan is still being accomplished. And God shows that through the beautiful, ordinary details in each of these extraordinary stories in this chapter and the chapters to come. So next week, don't just look at the stone and how it hit his head. Look at all the details, like how a young man would be bringing bread to his brothers and, hey, why is he defying the name of the Lord? I'll take him down. Like, don't just notice the big details. Notice the ordinary details and notice how God is weaving their lives together. And how did Saul even know about David? Oh, it's because he had an evil, he had an evil spirit and David would play the liar for him. And so, of course, he knew David. Like, these stories are beautiful. There's so much in this that proves to us that God's in control and he's providing for himself a king. But let's not forget, though, that David's story is simply a subplot of the greatest story being told throughout the Old Testament. It's God's plan is to provide for Israel exactly what they need. He provides for them David, who is a type or a picture of Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of God meeting Israel's needs, and our greatest need. One thing David could not do was to live a perfect life. We'll learn that soon. Therefore, he isn't qualified to be their savior. But he will forever, this is why we still talk about him, he will forever, David will forever be a beautiful arrow which points us towards the one perfect hero, Jesus Christ. About a thousand years later, after David dies, another young Jewish boy, whom there was nothing amazing about his external appearance, that we should honor him, he will be a descendant of David, and he will also be from Bethlehem. This young man will be better than Saul. This young man will be better than David. He will not only have a heart like God's, he will be God. 
He will not only be a mighty warrior, but he will fight the greatest battle in the history of the world. And he won't just defeat the Philistines and the surrounding enemies of Israel. He will defeat sin and death itself. And then he will impute that victory to all who believe. He will impute a new heart to those who have wicked hearts. That's me. That's the story that's being told here. So today, let's praise God for providing for himself a king. Let's not lift David up and praise David and have icons of David in here, oh, that great man of valor. Let's remember that David's an arrow pointing us to the one true king, the true king we worship when we come here. Our take-home truth for today is is this. It's the heart that God sees, and that's good news and bad news, and the heart where God works. Truly, it's what's inside that matters most.